you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn over or to click to or whatever avenue you have before you, Romans chapter 5. This morning, we're going to continue in our free series through the book of Romans chapter 5 today. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question for you to think about and answer in your own heart and mind. When was the last time you rejoiced? Think about that. When was the last time you rejoiced? And I don't mean, I know it's not a word we often, some, maybe that's not a word we use commonly, but I don't mean when was the last time you smiled. I hope that was very recently, maybe even a few moments ago. I don't mean when was the last time you laughed or even laughed really hard. But when was the last time you would say, I rejoiced? Um, Hopefully, that was this morning right after communion, which I said is what we're supposed to do, right? Sometimes, maybe you look back in your life on big moments. Um, Maybe if you're married, it was the day of your wedding. You'd say you rejoiced on that day. Or if you have children, maybe it was the day your child was born, or maybe it was the day that that new job opportunity came along that you had been waiting for, or something big happened in your life may have been a time of rejoicing. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't know if I've ever really rejoiced. All of us, I think, would agree that rejoicing is a good thing, but oftentimes rejoicing seems to be kind of a temporary thing. Sometimes we see rejoicing as a subjective response to an objective reality. That something happened in our life, some objective happened in our life, and it causes us as a response to rejoice to it. The problem with that is those objective realities often change. So you rejoice maybe after receiving a large sum of money that you didn't expect to receive. But then look at the pile of debt that you had built up and realize it's barely going to cover it and the rejoicing subsides. You rejoice at the child just having been born. And then that child begins to speak back to you, their own mind, and your rejoicing may kind of subside a little. You rejoice at your dream job that you received, and then corporate restructuring comes in, and you're back in your old position, and your joy has somewhat subsided. You rejoice at winning the championship one year, but then next year, the team barely breaks 500. And our subjective response to these objective realities can sometimes change quite a bit. But wouldn't it be nice if you could find something, a source that caused perpetual rejoicing? Something that caused rejoicing to be in our lives and never subsided. That's what I'd like to talk to us about this morning. You know, sometimes it seems like you run across... um, two different kinds of people in life, and maybe in the church, two different kinds of Christians. I got a couple pictures here this morning that maybe represent a couple different perspectives. I don't know if you have met uh, what I would call an Eeyore person or the Eeyore Christian person uh, there on uh, your left, my right. You know, this is the person that can find the cloud in every silver lining. This is the person that is determined that no matter how good things are, there's always something bad around the corner. 
If you've ever read the C.S. Lewis Narnia Chronicles, one of my favorite characters is a character named Puddleglum. Just his name gives away his disposition. Puddleglum. Eeyore. How many of you have known an Eeyore person or even an Eeyore Christian in your life? How many of you, that person is sitting... No, I won't say that. <laughs> Sometimes you mean the Eeyore people. And then there's this Cheshire cat, right? Cheshire cat, always smiling, always has the smile on. And whether, no matter what the circumstances are, can find the silver lining in every cloud, has almost a plastic smile on their face, always ready with a quick, quick cliche for every single circumstance, always knows exactly what you're going through and how you should respond to it, and has the plastic smile on their face no matter what, the Cheshire cat Christian I think we've all known people that probably fall into both these categories. To be honest, at some times in our lives, maybe each of us would say we have fallen into one category or the other. Somewhere between the Eeyore Christian and the Cheshire Cat Christian, I believe, is the path of true rejoicing and the path that God calls us to and the life that he calls us to live and have. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at uh, three reasons Paul gives us to rejoice. And here's how the passage goes. This is what God says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, let me stop there just for a second. Therefore, we always ask, what is it therefore? Uh, it's a good question in, in any type of literature when you come across a therefore. In this case, Paul tells us immediately in the next clause what it's there for. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. In other words, all of Romans chapters 1 through 4, all of the words leading up to this moment have been making this argument that we have been justified through faith. That everyone needs to be made right with God. There's no one right with God automatically. And the only way you can be made right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, therefore, so since that is the case, here's what's true. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were at God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his own son, how much more? 
having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul in this passage gives a number of things that are a result of being justified through faith. The first one he says is you have peace with God and access to God's grace. Those are pillars for Paul. He starts almost every letter, grace and peace to you. He finishes many of his letters, grace and peace to you. They're pillars of his theology. It brings together the Hebrew of his past, the shalom, the peace of God, and the Greek world that he's ministering in, the grace, and he brings them together and he says, in God you have peace and you have grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. And so these are pillar and foundational concepts for him. But then he goes on to give reasons for rejoicing. And in this passage, he he is given, because we are justified by faith, three reasons every Christian has to rejoice. He gives a past reason, a present reason, and a future reason for rejoicing. Let's look briefly at the past and future reasons for rejoicing. Then I want to park for the remainder of our time this morning on the present reason for rejoicing, which is where most of us live our lives, in the present Let me just talk briefly about the past and the future. The past reason for rejoicing is at the end of this passage in verse 11. It says, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul says that if you have no other reason to rejoice, being justified by faith, you can look back and see that you have been made right with God through Jesus Christ, and that in itself is always a reason to rejoice. If God has done nothing else for you but made a way for you to be right with him through Jesus Christ and forgiven your sins, taken away the guilt and the shame that go with that, if he's done nothing else, there is reason to rejoice because of that. And you could spend the rest of your life rejoicing and thanking God for that and it still would not be enough time for what he has done in healing and bridging this chasm that existed. So he says, you can look in the past and you can say, what you've received from God is a right relationship with him. And you should rejoice because of what he did in your past. And if you have received salvation and forgiveness through Jesus, you've got reason to rejoice in the past. But then he gives a future reason for rejoicing. It's near the beginning of this passage. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The future reason for rejoicing is that one day, all of God's glory will be completely revealed. And that's the hope of every believer. Throughout history, God has been revealing his glory. If you look back in the beginning in the Old Testament, it was usually to specific people at a specific time, Adam and Eve in the very beginning, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, revealing himself to individuals over time. At at least one point, he reveals himself to a whole nation of people, nation of Israel, when he was giving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. It says the whole nation of people around the mountain heard his voice. He revealed himself there. 
And then in Jesus Christ, we have the most uh, revealing uh, picture of God, of who God is that, that we've got to date, in God himself coming incarnate in flesh, living among us. He reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ, but not fully revealed. And the Bible says one day there's coming a full revelation of God's glory where everyone will know, where everyone will see the glory of God. When God says that the time that is now existing comes to an end and Jesus returns a second time, that God's glory will be fully revealed in that moment. It's the hope of every Christian and the hope of every believer that that day will once come. It's not a I wish, it is a sure hope that's there. And so when you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, certainly you can look back to the past and say, God has reconciled me to God and I can rejoice because of that. Certainly you can look forward to the future and say there's a time coming where all things will be made right. God's justice will flow completely and perfectly. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth and I can look forward to that. But most of us live in between that. In fact, all of us live in between those times. What about the present? What hope is there for rejoicing right in the middle? A few years ago, we did a series called Between the Trees. What hope is there for rejoicing between the tree in the Garden of Eden and the tree for the healing of the nations at the end of Scripture? What hope is there for those of us that are right in the middle between those two trees? Paul talks about it in this passage as well. He talks about the present, and he says this, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now we're getting to the real part, some of you say. Paul tells us not only can we rejoice in the present, but we can rejoice when we are suffering. Suffering, if you look at this word and its meaning, what it means is suffering. It's trouble. It's tribulation. It's hurts. It's pains. Sometimes they're a direct result of just being a Christian in this world. All the time, they're a result of sin's effect on the world that we live in. Sometimes it can be just the fact that you name Christ and you choose to follow Christ in the midst of a world that chooses not to that will cause suffering and persecution in your life. Jesus said it would be so. He said in this world you will have trouble. Jesus himself was persecuted living in this world. His followers should expect nothing less. There's a time where we will at times experience persecution simply for the fact that we choose to name Christ as Lord and follow his ways and his truths in the world. There are other times that you're going to experience suffering and pain just because of the effects of living in a world that is tainted by sin and touched in every way by it. Law, suffering through pain and loss. The loss of a loved one, pain of death can bring much suffering. Even when you know the person trusted in Jesus and is with him, the loss of even temporary separation, that pain is real. Death was not a part of God's original ideal design, and when it intrudes in our lives, it's painful. 
and it ought to be. Suffering comes in an unexpected diagnosis maybe for you or for a child, for someone close to you. It comes in the form of long-term illness, long-term care, and quite frankly, long-term bills. Suffering comes in relationships in terms of betrayal, abandonment, and abuse. Promises broken, love lost. Suffering comes when those you love and who once loved you turn their back on you and cause you pain. Suffering comes when life just gets overwhelming and you want to quit. What do you do during those times? What help and what hope is there in that moment? You can certainly look back at what God has done and you can certainly look forward to what's going to happen, but there's something you want right in the present, right in that moment, and what hope is there for you in that space of time. Many in the world would say, well, just look on the bright side. We have all kinds of expressions that are like that, right? Abraham Lincoln at one point said, we can complain because rose bushes have thorns or we can rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. We have lots of statements like that, right? Where people would say, hey, it's not that bad. It could be worse. I don't even know why that's supposed to be comforting to us. But that's what we say to each other, right? It could be worse. But is that the best we can offer Many will say, well, this too shall pass, and they think they're quoting the Bible. You're not. You're quoting an ancient Persian saying that we have. Some of you that are a little older can remember the theme to the TV show, The Facts of Life. You remember it? You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and then you have the facts of life. That's the best we can sometimes offer us in the midst of pain. This is what you have. You get good, you get bad. You know, hopefully it passes soon. There's probably something worse that could have happened. So just, just be happy. I'm happy that Scripture offers us something more than just be happy. In these, two, in these verses, we have two very important reasons that we can rejoice in our sufferings. The first is something God is doing in you. The second is something God has done and is doing for you. The first reason you can rejoice in suffering is because of what God is doing in you. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Just going through suffering means that you are enduring it, and just as you're enduring it, God says that he is building character within you. This word character is like the result of a refining of metals where it's heated and the dross is taken away and what's left is pure And so that's what happens when we go through trials and difficulties. It's not unlike when the smith or or the knife sharpener takes a knife and he sharpens that knife. Each time of that, I actually brought one with me. I didn't know if it's good for a pastor to have a knife on a stage, but uh, I didn't know if that illustration looks good. Um, But it is true, right? You're sharpening your knife. And each time, I mean, you're getting sharper. What's happening? Little bits of the knife are actually being taken away. Little little barbs and little things that were on there that would not cut well are actually being removed. If the knife could talk, 
You know, the steel might say, what are you doing? That hurts. You're taking stuff. That's a part of me. You're removing something that is a part of me as you do that. And sometimes I think that's the way we feel. But for the purpose of what? Taken away if the, so that at the end you have a sharp blade ready to do now what it was more designed to do. When character is developed, it results, the scriptures say, in hope. Why? Because when you endure and when your character is built, the next time you suffer, you have hope that has been built within you because of how God took you through it last time. I don't know how many times I've sat down with a seasoned saint, sometimes in a hospital room, sometimes in a long-term care facility, with a smile on their face, rejoicing and hearing stories of how God had taken them through things in the past and how God will take them through this as well. A quiet confidence that is not, you're not born with, a quiet confidence that is not giving arbitrarily, but a quiet confidence that is built over time through trials and suffering, through enduring them, through character being built and hope being nurtured. And God is working in you, even in the midst of your trials and your suffering at times. One commentator, Robert Mounts, puts it this way. He says, character denotes that which has been proven by trial Endurance brings proof that we have stood the test. Thus, it is the experience of coming through a time of testing that produces hope. Our confidence in God's ability and willingness to bring us through difficult times leads to an ever brighter hope for that which lies before. Read that again. Our confidence in God's ability and willingness to bring us through difficult times leads us to an even brighter hope to that which is beyond. It's those times of we can look and say, well, God has worked in us. That Holy Spirit that God has placed within you that will allow you to go through future times as well. John Ortberg, pastor in Menlo Park, California, tells the story. He puts it this way. I think this is related and helpful. He says this. He said, imagine you're handed a script of your newborn child's life. Better yet, imagine you're given an eraser and five minutes to edit out whatever you want. You read that she will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for her. In high school, she'll make a great circle of friends, then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, she will get into her preferred college, but while there, she will lose her leg in a car accident. Following that, she'll go through a difficult depression. A few years later, she'll get a great job, then lose the job in an economic downturn. She'll get married, but then go through the grief of separation. With this script of your child's life and five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? Psychologist Jonathan Haidt poses this question in his hypothetical exercise. Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that would cause them pain? If you could erase every failure, disappointment, 
and period of suffering, would that be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into the best version of themselves? Is it possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crises and trauma, to reach the fullest potential of development and growth? Ortberg contends that God doesn't always erase all of our stress and pain before before it starts. Instead, God can use the failures, disappointments, periods of suffering to help us grow. Ortberg says, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. God isn't at work producing the circumstances I may want. He's always at work in circumstances producing the me he wants. See, God is about Christ being formed in you that that could all happen under sunshine and rainbows and lollipops and everything else would be great. The truth is it usually doesn't. Most of our character is forged through some of the difficult times we'll walk through. So you can rejoice in suffering because of what God is doing in you. But let me give you one more as we close. The second reason you can rejoice in suffering is because of what God does for you. And here's what I think is one of the most exciting parts of this passage. Verses 6 through 10. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You can rejoice because of what God is doing for you. This passage is interesting to me. I actually read it uh, throughout my life numerous times, and I don't know that I ever truly understood it until I really started to study it this week. And maybe even as you read it, it's, it's, it's a bit of an enigma to you, or maybe you're probably much smarter than me and you just get it immediately. It took me a while to figure out what was being said there and the exciting good news that's going on there. And here's what confused me. What confused me is the end of verse 10. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This is what was confusing to me. Shall we be saved is future tense. It's what's going on now and in the future. And being saved by his life always confused me because I thought we were saved by his death. It seems to me this sentence should be having been saved by the death of Jesus Christ. Past tense and about his death and not his life. And yet Paul very clearly says, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. What Paul is describing here is he's saying God has given you an incredibly valuable gift, but it didn't end at your salvation. 
See, in this passage, he's saying, look, God has given you an incredibly valuable gift. The way you base the value of a gift, according to John Stott, one commentator, he says, the way you base the value of a gift is twofold. How much did it cost the giver and how worthy is the recipient? And that's the value of the gift. How much did it cost the giver? Was it a costly gift? And what's the worthiness of the recipient? So God gave us the most costly gift in giving us the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And he gave it to us while we were completely, this passage says, ungodly, under God's wrath, sinners, at our worst. It says, for a righteous man, probably no one's going to die for that. And a righteous person is like the person who gets the law right. They're doing the right thing, but they're not real fun to hang around with. Like they do the right thing, but you don't want to like go out for dinner with them. Like, all right, they're doing the right thing, but I don't want to hang out with them. Probably no one's going to die for them. Now for a good person, here's the person that does the right thing, and you want to go out to dinner with them. Like, they're cool. They're fun. They're great to be around. They're good to you. You're good to them. This is a good person, right? You know, he's a good kid. She's, she's, she's a great girl. You know, you want to hang around this person. For a good person, Paul says, someone might dare die for that person. But here's the value of God's gift for you. When you were neither of those things, you weren't living rightly, nor were you even fun to be around. God said, I will die for you that you might have right relationship with me. And there's the value of the gift he offers. That he gave this huge, valuable gift. So how does that inform this here? Here it is. Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Here's what Paul's saying. I always thought that saved through his life meant salvation and should be past tense, but that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is now that you are saved, do you really think the God who gave you that hugely valuable gift gave everything for you when you were at your worst and completely unworthy and unreconciled and ungodly and under his wrath and had nothing good to offer? The God that died for you then in that moment, do you really think now that you are reconciled to him, now that you are justified before him, do you think he's going to abandon you now? That's what he's saying. He's saying if he did that back then when you had nothing to offer, now that you have been made right with God, justified through faith in Jesus Christ, do you really think he's going to let you fall? Do you really think he's going to abandon you at this moment? It's like the father, he said, it's like the father who, who may jump in to save his child from, from, a, you know, from, from imminent death. He's not going to let him fall down a hole while he's walking home. And that, that's, that's the picture that's being offered here. We were snatched from imminent death and the wrath of God, and God did it when we were totally unworthy, and he gave the life of his son for it. So he's not going to abandon you on the rest of the journey. And the life of Jesus this part, again, you're probably much smarter than me, so you understand what it meant, but it took me some time to figure this out because I always think the life of Jesus of the life of Jesus, like pre-cross, like before he died. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the life of Jesus post-resurrection. 
He's talking about the fact that Christ is living today now. And he is working as the living Christ on your behalf. And Hebrews says this. This is what Christ is doing right now. You go to that verse from Hebrews, John. Hebrews chapter 7. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save. Saving. This is that saving, not just justification at salvation. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Here's the good news. Here's where you can rejoice through suffering because you have a God who is alive and who is talking to God the Father, who is praying for you, who is for you as you walk through it and who has not and will not abandon you. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said that after his resurrection. Jesus is there and walking with you, and the reason you and I can rejoice through our suffering is because Christ lives, making intercession for you, and he will carry you home. That's the good news of why you can rejoice in suffering. So what does that look like practically? It doesn't look like faking it, putting on a plastic smile and pretending you're impervious to pain. But it doesn't look like letting those things overwhelm us either. It is a deep trust in God forged over time that rejoices, boasts in God through pain and suffering that will come in this life. Biblically for Paul, it looks like being in prison and telling his friends that God is using it to further God's kingdom. It looks like Paul and Silas singing when they are chained to the walls of a Roman prison. For you, it looks like hitting your knees tomorrow morning and trust that God who saved you will not abandon you now. It looks like singing about amazing grace and how great God is taking you through trials and toils. It looks like the mom who gets up and trusts God for the strength today even though yesterday was pretty hard. The dad who gets up and goes to work, even though the job might be difficult. The place, the student who gets up and goes to that school where they know they face opposition, where they know they face hardship and difficulty, but it's in faith rejoicing that God is with you, has not abandoned you, is still alive and is working on your behalf. It is artesian joy. If I can close with that illustration, if you know what an artesian well is, there are some wells that you drill down in the ground and you have to work to pump the water out of the ground and you hook a pump up and you have to pump and pump and pump in order to get that water out from deep in the ground. What I believe is being talked about in Romans chapter four is an artesian joy. An artesian well is water that is just below the surface and if you punch down into it, it is going to on its own flow up and continue to flow because of the buildup of water and reserves that are there. And I think the joy of Christ is like that. It's not something you work up. It's not something you play up. It's not something you make up. It is when you tap into Christ and in his life, there is a joy that's found in his presence with his Holy Spirit that dwells within you 
that is available to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the living God who today is praying and talking to God the Father for you. Some of you here today and you're searching for something to rejoice about. Maybe you tried all kinds of things. Maybe you tried health, working out. Maybe you tried relationships. And when that did not work, you moved on to the next thing only to be disappointed. What happens then is you continue to be disappointed or you become detached so that you can't enjoy anything at all. Lasting joy can be yours today as you tap into that well of the love and salvation of Jesus Christ. Remember how the passage started. Since being justified through faith. That faith, that justification is available freely to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where that joy is rooted. Some here today just need to be reminded of this truth that rejoicing comes not from the things of the world, but because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The gospel gives us a God who does not change. You are right to rejoice. You are right. You are made right with God so that you may live a life of continually rejoicing before him and in this world. When you are right with God, you always have a reason to rejoice. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your peace that this passage and that your love is grounded in. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. And God, I just, Lord, I come before you in light of this word today. And I recognize that in this room and in a room this size on any given day, there's varying degrees of suffering that may be being experienced. Some that can be seen on the outside much that is only visible to you on the inside. Lord, I pray that as we have faith in Jesus Christ, that you would help us to rejoice in our sufferings, not for them, but in them, through them knowing that you are at work in us and that you are at work for us. Lord, we come to you today recognizing that at times the circumstances of our lives feel like they can overwhelm us. Lord, I pray for that man. I pray for that woman today who's come in here and the circumstances of life have weighed upon them. Lord, that today they would find that you are enough, that your Holy Spirit living within them, that Jesus talking to the Father for them is enough for them to be able to rejoice even through suffering. Father, would you help us to be the kind of church the kind of church that is not the Eeyore church that say, woe is me, the sky is falling, but is not the kind of plastic smile church that ignores the real pain that's in people's lives, but the kind of church that will point people to Jesus and show a way of rejoicing that is possible only through him being justified by faith. These things are true. 
and we will worship you and live our lives for you because of it. In Christ's name, amen.